It's time for the Appleseed. Filled with stories for you and your family, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers, folk tales, fairy tales, tall tales, personal and family tales, history tales, and more. And we're really thrilled for this special episode of The Appleseed, recorded live right here in the Appleseed studio with our wonderful studio audience. Here they are. And we're joined tonight by one of America's favorite storytellers. She comes to us all the way from Ohio. We're thrilled to have her with us. A story from this teller can leave you not only feeling like you've heard a great tall tale, some of them, but also feel like you just want to reach back into your own memory and the memories of your family members and plumb those things and sit around a kitchen table and share that stuff. And that's what's going to happen to you over the next little while as you listen to the tales of Kim Whitecamp. Thank you. So when I was a little girl, my parents didn't go to the school of the big box stores. When you go there, you see kids that are whining and crying and their parents say, if you behave, I'll get you this. My parents never said that to us. They said, if you don't behave, you're going to get something. <laughs> and my parents never doled out money. Everywhere I go, different stores and things, I see people just handing their kids cash. My mom and dad never just, they never just handed us cash. My dad had an interesting way of teaching us things. If it was a really good day, if my mom had had a good day, after dinner, we'd get dessert. And... Most of the time, it was canned peaches in these melanin uh, bowls. They were pastel color. And if she was in a really good mood, we got Cool Whip. <laughs> and when she put that dessert in front of all the kids, we weren't allowed to touch it until my dad walked around with his spoon and took one bite out of each of our dishes. And he would say, that's the government. <laughs> So he had a way of teaching us things in a very interesting way. And you never dreamt of asking my dad for money without any good purpose and without ever having to earn it. But there came a time when there was something that I wanted that I thought that my dad would feel good about that he would just kind of give me the cash for it. So I waited for the right timing. First, he came home whistling. That's a good sign. My mom was making his favorite meal, rolled sugared apples with kielbasa. And I thought, oh, he's going to be in a good mood. And tonight's the night I'm going to ask for the cash. So after dinner, my dad had sat back in his chair and the little black and white TV was showing Walter Conkite. And I thought, I'm going to wait till the news is over and then I'm going to ask him. So I sat at the table and my dad kind of kept eyeing me while the news was playing. And then he said, well, turn that off. And he said, tell me why you're sitting here hanging out with me after dinner. And I said, well, dad, I have something that I want to ask you. And he said, okay. He said, what is it? I said, well, I need some money. Oh, you need some money. All right. What do you need it for? I said, well, Dad, I said, I'm so tired of using my brother's fishing rods when we go fishing. Our family is really big on fishing. And I said, I'm just really tired of using hand-me-down rods, and there's a rod that I want. And if you could just give me the money for it, I would so appreciate it. And he said, you know what? <clears throat> I respect that. We love to fish. You should have your own fishing rod. He said, I'll be right back. And he left the table. And I sat there thinking to myself, I can't believe this. My dad 
is just gonna go get the cash and hand it to me. The first kid in the history of our family is just gonna be handed some cash. Well, I waited there really excited and my dad came back and I saw he had something in his hand and my heart was kind of pounding. I was like, I can't believe this and I'm gonna get to go get my fishing rod. I already had it picked out. And my dad sat down and I saw in his hand was a piece of paper and he slid it across the table (laughs) and on that paper were jobs that I could do to earn money. (sighs) I resigned with a sigh and I said, okay, let me look. So I went down the list and there, number four was a job that I knew I would enjoy. Now, when I threw rocks down into Burke's pond, I got in trouble, especially when I took out a barn window. When I threw my little sister around, I would get in trouble. As a kid, when you throw stuff, you get in trouble. But there on that paper was a job where I was going to get paid to throw things. And that's how I got my first newspaper route. (laughs) I loved it. I would wait at the end of the school day. I would go to the end of the driveway and hook my fingers into the twine that held a large stack of newspapers. And I'd drag them into the garage. I'd snip the twine. And then I would take the newspapers, thwap it into my hand, roll it up. And then I had rubber bands down my arms. And I would snap one around each newspaper. And then I'd drop it into a big cloth bag made of canvas. And then there were always a few extra that I would put in the bike basket on my, ba- on my bike. It was made of, it was, I called it plicker. It was plastic wicker. And uh, off I would go into the neighborhood. And I got to whip these things at people's houses. <laughs> the first time I took my route, I was so excited. Top of dog box, left bush front porch, top roof line, side left. I made all of my targets the best that I could and it was absolutely wonderful. Well, one day when I was riding my bike down uh, to deliver my papers through the neighborhood, and I need to explain this. My neighborhood wasn't like, you know, rows of houses. It was a lot of farmland spread out, but with a lot of relatives that lived there and then some come here's that came later. Well, one day I was riding my bike down through to deliver the papers and it wasn't long after I got the newspaper out. When I got down to Miss Della's house and she came out and she said, stop, stop your bike. I pushed back on the pedals and left a black line on the macadam of the road. And she came out and she said, Kimmy, she said, I'm sick of you throwing that newspaper at my house onto the bushes. She said, from now on, when you come down with the newspaper, you're going to stop and you're going to wait for me. And I'm going to come out and we're going to barter. Oh, I love to barter. She said, I'm going to give you something and you're going to hand me the newspaper. And she was true to her word. Sometimes it was a little baggie full of red cinnamon hearts. Sometimes it was a fresh cut branch of lilac that I would stick into my basket and I could smell it the whole time I rode my bike. And then I'd give it to my mama as a gift. One time she went away and I held her paper for a few days. And when she came back, she gave me a little beaded woman on a, on a rope that she had gotten on a trip that she had flown on an airplane to go on this trip. And I just thought that was the greatest thing that she brought me that back. Everybody loved Miss Della. How could you not love a woman like that? She had cornflower blue eyes and her skin leathered from the sun because she was always outside. She had a large hat that looked like a a flour tortilla met a UFO. (laughs) She always had on a shirt with kids standing around the world, holding hands and wore sandals from the first time the sun peaked through the winter until the first snowflake fell from the sky. But there was a lot of reasons why we loved her. And, uh... I got a few I'm going to tell you, just because I need to help you understand this sweet woman. So she had gone to veterinarian school, but she only made it halfway through. And 
she had enough knowledge to make her dangerous. Now, I lived in an area where we had large animal vets come in for cows and horses and things like that, but we didn't have a companion vet, like a small animal vet. So she took that job on herself with half knowledge. And you could take anything there, a cat, a dog, a bird, a chicken, whatever, and she would try and work with it. But her husband, not one to miss an opportunity, became a taxidermist. (laughs) And they put a little wooden burn sign on their door that said, either way, you get your pet back. (laughs) So how could you not love that woman? She had a heart of gold, even though sometimes it went awry. Another reason that we loved her, especially the kids, was because she had a worm farm. She was ahead of her time. Before composting was popular, On the left side of her property, right at the line uh, that was invisibly drawn of who owns what, she had all of these wood-stilted plastic bins, and on top were uh, lids with holes. And in those bins, she had compost, and in that compost, she had red wigglers, the best fishing worm you could possibly use. How can you not love somebody that has a worm farm as a kid that's the coolest thing ever? Well, the day came when I had enough money to get my fishing rod. And I told my dad, and he said, okay, I'll take you down to the Kmart. It was a big deal. We had just gotten a Kmart. And my dad came home early from work, got me, put me into the Oldsmobile station wagon, and off we went to the Kmart. And I knew exactly where to go. I went back to the sporting goods area, and I picked up that blue and white Mickey Mouse fishing rod. I paid for it $9.99 in tax. I took it home and I pulled it out of that formed plastic front cover that was hard and peeled off the back cardboard. And I sat that fishing rod in the corner of my bedroom and I waited. Now, my dad's a fine fisherman and you may think that he's the one that's going to take me fishing. Mm -mm. My brothers are good fishermen and you may think that they were the ones that were going to help me break that rod in. No, I was going to wait for my Uncle Howard. My Uncle Howard is the quintessential fisherman in our family. And so my mom put a call out to him that I had a new fishing rod and that I wanted to break it in. Well, sure enough, that Saturday, there was a loud knock on the door. I threw the door open and the smell of vanilla pipe tobacco came through the doorway as he lifted me up and spun me around and said, there's my girl. He said, I heard you got a new fishing rod. I said, yes, I did. He said, you go to your bedroom and get it. Okay. I said, okay. Well, I ran back to the bedroom and I got it and I brought it out to him and he held it in his hand. And he said, oh, that's a fine fishing rod. (laughs) He said, go down and get your bait bucket and we're going to head out. I said, okay. Well, I went down to the basement to get the bait bucket. Now, I don't know how you all do it. How many fishermen? Okay, great. (laughs) I can pretty much say anything and you'll be like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I know this. So I went down and got the bait bucket. Now, what we do is we have a bucket that has holes in the bottom. And then there's a rope that we attach to our belt loop on our jeans because then we can put our bait in the bucket and it trails behind us and water flows through and then the bait doesn't die, right? So I went down to get the bucket and I found it and I made sure the rope was attached. And as I was coming up the basement stairs, I heard my mother saying to my uncle Howard, Howard, you better use the fishing rod. And I heard him say, Lenny, that's the whole point of this trip. Of course, I'm going to use the fishing rod. As I turned the corner into the living room, my little mama was poking Howard in the chest saying, if I find out you didn't use that fishing rod. Now, you may think it's weird that my mom's saying that, but that's because my uncle Howard was the president of the Noodlers Association of America. 
Now, if you don't know what noodling is or hand fishing, which I don't think you do, <laughs> from how far we've gotten about fishing, I'm gonna give you a really quick 101 just for you so that you know. Here's how it works. You have a footer and you have a noodler and you got a bunch of guys and a cooler of cold Diet Pepsi. <laughs> Depends on where you live. And they get in the truck and they go down to where the creek dumps into the river. They get out their gear and they go down to where the creek goes into the river. And there's a plot of land there between trees where it's worn down where my brothers and my fathers and my, my father and my brothers and different relatives have fished for a long time. Well, they set up and the noodler and the footer go into the water. Noodler in the front, footer in the back. The other guys sit on shore drinking their cold beverages and waiting. They go in and then the noodler goes underneath the water. He feels around for a hole. Now, if he finds a hole that is round and slick smooth, he doesn't put his hand in because that's a snake hole. But if he finds one that's oval and it has ridges, he doesn't put his hand in that either because that's a snapping turtle hole. But if he finds one that is oval and slick smooth, that's a catfish hole. So when he finds that, he comes up and he tells the footer, I found a catfish hole. Then he goes back underneath the water. He puts his hand in the hole. He moves his hand and it looks like bait. And that catfish comes out of the back of the hole and it chumps down on his hand. Then in the back of the throat, there's a bone that feels like a luggage handle. And he hooks his fingers in that and he starts to kick. When he starts to kick, the footer takes his feet, locks them underneath his armpits, grabs his knees and pulls him out. And as that catfish comes out of the hole, he thrusts that noodler's legs forward. They wrap around the fish because if you don't have your legs around the fish, when it comes fully out, it'll turn like an alligator and you'll break your arm. After he's got his legs around that fish, then the footer takes his hands, shoves them underneath his armpits, locks them up and then pulls that noodler and the fish to shore. When they get to shore, the footer then opens the jaws of the catfish. The noodler safely releases his hand, and there's the fish. This is when the guys who have been waiting do their job. They get up, they walk over, they surround the fish, and they go, all right. <laughs> it's a big job. So that's why my mom was telling my Uncle Howard, you better use the fishing rod because she didn't want me noodling. So off we went and we went to Miss Della's to get some bait. When we got to Miss Della's, we didn't even knock because it was early morning. We could tell it was going to be a nice day and we knew she was going to be outside. So we went around the side of the house where the bins were that held the worms and sure enough, there she was. She had the lids off and she had gloves that went up her to her elbows. She had two utility buckets and she was dumping them into each bin and then digging her arms in and pulling up and digging her arms in and pulling up. My Uncle Howard said, Miss Della, what are you doing? She said, well, I made a deal with the little diner up in Locust Grove, and they give me twice a day all of their eggshells and their coffee grounds. She said, it's wonderful. It makes fantastic compost. We walked over and she looked and she said, Kimmy, did you get your fishing rod? I said, yes, I did. She goes, girl, your first round of bait is on me. Why well, I had my bucket at my side and they commenced to talking while I started looking for red wigglers. Red wigglers are thick, shiny, flashy, juicy, and wigglers. The perfect thing for the end of a fish hook. 
Well, I began to dig for some red wigglers, and every time I uncovered some, they'd wiggle down in. And I'd uncover some more, and they'd wiggle down in. And finally, almost 11 minutes later, it took me that long just to get a handful of bait and put it in my bucket. Well, we took off. And I was pretty excited about this. We went to where that beautiful worn down piece of land was. And my uncle Howard looked at me and he said, Kimmy, suit up that rod. Well, I got my fishing rod and held the hook in my hand with the rod here. And I reached into the bucket to pull out a worm. But those red wigglers had taken and knotted themselves into a red wiggling ball. And I would pull a worm and it wouldn't come loose. And I would pull another worm and it wouldn't come loose. Finally, he looked at me and said, Kimmy, what's taking you so long? I said, I cannot get these worms to come apart that I can pull one. And you don't want to kill them. You want live bait. And he said, give me the bucket. So I handed him the bucket and he put it under his arm and he reached in and he tried to pull a worm and it wouldn't come loose. Then he tried to pull another worm and it wouldn't come loose. And he said, I don't know what is wrong with these worms. He said, you know, they smell funny. I said, what? He said, they smell like something familiar. And then he held the bucket up to his ear, leaned in and listened. And he said, Kimmy, they're making noise. I said, what? He said, they are making noise. And he took the bucket, steadied it on the palm of his hand, leaned it forward and let me listen. I leaned in, took a sniff, turned my ear, and I heard it. Boopy dooby doop boop. <laughs> boop boopy doop boop. If you're under 30, just ask anyone in here over 30. <laughs> I looked at him and I said, I know that song is from that coffee commercial. He said, yes, it is. He said, I think these worms are juiced up on caffeine. <laughs> he said, they're, they're juiced up on caffeine. And no sooner did he say that than that red wiggling ball of worms hit the side of the bucket, tipped it out of his hands. They rolled into the water, went down that river and sunk. And I looked at him and I said, what are we supposed to do? We don't have any bait. And he looked at me and he said, girl, roll up your pants. I rolled up my pants, laid down my fishing rod, and he said, we're going to go noodling. <laughs> I was so excited. He said, we're going to keep it small. So we stayed along the shoreline, and he felt around and felt around, and then he found a little hole. And he said, you know what to do? I said, yes, sir. And I put my hand in, and I wiggled, and that catfish came up, and it chomped onto my fingers, and I felt a little bone in the back of its throat and pulled it out of the hole, and it hung there. And I said, Uncle Howard, I did it. And he said, let it go. And I released it off of my hand, and downstream it went. We did that three times. And he looked at me and he said, are you getting tired of the little ones? <laughs> I said, yes, sir. He said, okay, do you know what to do? You're going to follow me into the water, okay? And when I find a hole, when I start kicking, you grab my feet. I said, yes, sir. And so we went into the water and the water was bobbing between my lip and my nose and my lip and my nose as I followed in his wake, moving with the water. And then he stopped just as my tiptoes were digging into that wet bottom. And he said, this looks like a good spot. He went underneath the water and it went still. And then all of a sudden he broke surface, flicked his hair in a Bo Derrick move. And he said, girl, he said, I found a big old catfish hole here. He said, I heard tell of a catfish here called the undertaker. And I think this is its hole. He said, are you ready? I said, yes, sir, I'm ready. He went back underneath the water and I watched the bottom rubber soles of his shoes 
And then they began to kick furiously. So I grabbed his ankles and I pulled with all the strength I had, locked them underneath my armpits and then felt right below his knees and grabbed on hard. I pulled and I pulled and I pulled and I could see the glinting head of that catfish as it slowly came out of its hole. And then that catfish began to break surface. And before I could release the legs, everything went slow motion like a wild kingdom sponsored by Mutual of Omaha. (laughs) And for a moment I was looking, that catfish was looking deep into my soul and I was looking deep into its soul, which I know is theologically incorrect, but it's my story. (laughs) And as it looked at me in that slow motion second, I saw that its eye was rolling around wildly in its head and I thought, I've seen that look before when my dad has too much coffee and nothing to eat. And that's when I realized in that split second that that catfish had consumed that double red wiggler (laughs) espresso. And we were the idiot baristas that had served it. I got my wits about me and I shoved his legs forward. He wrapped them around the catfish. And when he did, that catfish came full surface and it shot downstream in a caffeinated jerk. And my uncle Howard had been holding onto that bone handle, legs around that catfish. And when that catfish took off, he lost his grip and his hand went all the way to the back inside tailbone of that catfish. There he was going downstream, legs around that catfish, arm the whole way down inside that catfish, its lips slapping up around his neck. My Uncle Howard had a fish hickey for a week. (laughs) And I even made an album with his story and his wife still don't believe it. (laughs) Well, I stood there hopeless. I had nothing I could do. He was gone. I didn't even know if he was gonna be back. I stood there rocking in the waves of the river. And then I heard it and then I saw it. My Uncle Howard riding that fish. Help! 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 And on that third time, out of my peripheral vision, I saw my blue and white Mickey Mouse fishing rod and I thought, my time has come. I went back to shore, picked it up, went to where a tree had fell into the water. I wrapped my legs around it, locked tight, and I waited for the exact right moment. Help! And I released that line, hooked onto his Wrangler belt jeans loop, brought him to a complete dead stop. His arm came flying out of that fish. He was still holding on to the inside. And when he pulled his arm out, he turned that catfish inside out. That slick internal tail slipped from his fingers and that catfish went downstream. Bones once on the inside, now on the outside. Its heart hanging off its chest, pumping, pumping, pumping. Black eye sockets looking back at me and its gills opening and closing, winking silver skin that was once on the inside, now on the outside. And then it sunk into the water and disappeared. Well, I reeled in my Uncle Howard (laughs) and unhooked him and we went to shore and we just both plopped down. We were dead tired. And he said, man, girl, that was some fine fishing. Don't tell your mama. (laughs) He said, I bet you're tired. I said, yes, sir, I'm tired. He said, well, I'm tired too. I said, I bet you are. I said, that catfish gave you a ride three times. He said, I know how many times it gave me a ride up and down. He said, I bet the fish is tired. It'll never be the same. I said, no, it won't. He said, I bet they're tired too. I said, they? Who? 
He said, the people listening to this story. <laughs> he said, you've been pulling their line for 20 minutes. And they bought it hook, line, and sinker. Thank you. At the beginning of our time together, I told you that even some of the tall tales that you hear from Kim will take you back in your memory to very real things that happened to you. I, we learn how many people in here are fishermen, right? <laughs> but still, chances are you've been taken back in your minds to stuff that's happened between you and people that you care about. There's a whole lot more coming up this hour on The Apple Seed, a whole lot more of Kim's tales that you're going to enjoy. You won't want to miss a word. I'm Sam Payne. Listening to an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by the Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back for more stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by the Appleseed. Here's your host, Sam Payne. Well, it's great to have you back with us on the Appleseed. A special episode recorded live right here in the Appleseed studio with our friend Kim Whitecamp. If you're just joining us before the break, we were taken on a noodling adventure. And of course, if you don't know what noodling is, you can go back and listen to the first part of the episode, right? We want to bring her back to the stage without further ado. Ladies and gentlemen, Kim Whitecamp. Thank you. So my friend Andy says that we live a goodly life as storytellers, and it is so true because we get to travel, meet people, we're cared for, we're loved by people, and we get to hear stories. And one of my favorite things is to ask people, so what's your story? I do it all the time. So what's your story? And I don't even have to prompt them. They usually have some mile marker in their life that they start from automatically, some emotional dip that just has become their bookmark. Well, I was traveling through Tennessee and I met a really lovely young man. He was in his late 20s, almost 30. And we sat there talking music because he was an incredible musician. I met him at a songwriter's camp. And I asked him, so what's your story? Tell me your story. And he said, well, he said, uh, when I was a little boy, he said, my dad played violin. And he was incredible. He said, as a little kid, I even knew that he was insanely good. He said, I would sit at his feet in awe. He was my hero. And he would play every night when he got home from work. He'd pull off his tie, unbutton the top few buttons of his shirt, and then get out his violin and begin to play. And I loved him so much. And he made me fall in love with music. So I began to study music and practice music and enjoy music because I wanted to be like my dad. He said, then I got to be 10 through 12. And I started to ask questions like, so dad, you're so good. I hear people talk about how good you are. Why don't you go out and play? He said, nah, he said, I'm good. I'm, I'm happy here. And he'd wink at me and he'd continue to play. Then I became an older teen you know, that 15 kind of area. And I started to get irritated 
because I'd learned by then that my dad had actually turned down opportunities to play with bands that traveled all over the country and beyond. And I would say, Dad, I don't get it. You know, why would you give that up? You know, you're stuck behind a desk working a nine to five job. I don't even understand it. It's like you're wasting your talent. And my dad would just smile and he'd play his violin. Well, then I got older, 17, and I began to feel really irritated with him. When he played the violin, it would just irritate me and I'd get angry. And I started to lose respect for him. I said things to myself like, well, he may throw away his dream, but I'm not throwing away mine. He may have given up what he wanted to do with his life, but I'm not. I'm never going to be like him. Working a nine to five. Well, an offer came, he told me, to travel with a very notable band, but he hadn't graduated yet. And his parents were really upset as he defied them, got an old pickup truck and said, I'm leaving. And there's nothing you can do about it. I graduate in just a month or two. He said, I'm out of here. And he said, I remember seeing my mom with a worn out tissue in her hand and her head down as I pulled away. And my dad with his arms across his chest and his mouth set firm as he looked down at the ground, red faced. And I pulled away and thought, I am never looking back. I am not going to be like him. I'm going to go live my dream. And he said, I did. He said, I spent a couple years playing with that band and everything went well. I said, but what about your relationship with your mom and dad? He said, well, for those years, we barely talked. And when we did, it was just polite phone calls. He said, but all that's changed now. And I said, really? I said, why? He said, well, life changed for me. And I got some insight into my father. And now we're close. And he's forgiven me. And I understand him. And this is the song I wrote for that kid that explains the whole thing. He said Papa was a rolling stone But that's not the way the story goes Push being a star far out of sight Working hard to be home To tuck his son in each night Working the nine to five grind Keeping pictures of his wife and kid in his mind Don't you know sometimes his toe will go to tapping Asked if he had regrets, well, you know he would be lying As he holds his son's hand He dreams of playing in a band Making music and traveling the road But those dreams are for the young His heart's rooted at home you know there's always a melody left unsung You know there's always a melody left unsung Now his little boy thinks he's all grown up Harsh words in a packed up pickup truck And as he pushes away he says Dad I was born to fly And he leaves with an old pawn shop guitar by his side now that boy's become a man Spent a couple years playing in a rock and roll band And then life threw him a hard curve right Now he works
wish to be home to tuck his son in each night as he holds his son's hand he dreams of playing in a band making music and traveling the road but those dreams are for the young his heart's rooted at home you know there's always a melody left unsung as he holds his son's hand he dreams of playing in a band making music and traveling the road oh, but those dreams are for the young his heart's rooted at home you know there's always a melody left unsung you know there's always a melody left It's such a pleasure to bring these tellers into the Appleseed studio. We hope you're enjoying yourself. We hope you're enjoying yourself at home if you're listening from home. And there's a lot more to come. Stick around. You won't want to miss a word. You're listening to the Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to the Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on the Appleseed and especially our wonderful live audience. Here they are. <laughs> the Appleseed studio full of all kinds of happiness as we've been enjoying together the stories of the wonderful storyteller Kim Whitecamp. You've heard tender stories. You've heard rollicking stories. But all of the stories illustrate what we feel so strongly about here on the Appleseed, that the sharing of memories and thoughts and stories can be the spark that ignites memories and thoughts and stories that you can share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room. That kind of storytelling makes for memories that last a lifetime. We're going to make another memory here by bringing Kim Whitecamp back to the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, Kim Whitecamp. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. So I'm actually from Ohio, and I have a little yarn shop there, and I love my little yarn shop. I opened that yarn shop so when I wasn't on the road performing, I would have something to do when I went home where I could gather with women and create and make. There's even a few men that come in. We have a cowboy that crochets. <laughs> Can't beat a cowboy that crochets. <laughs> Well, we have a, I had, when we put it up, when we put the shop together, I decided to dedicate the whole front of the store where there's these huge windows and beautiful light to having a lounge, a place where women could come, a community couch of sorts, where they could work on their projects and come together and talk and share and support each other. Well, what has happened is we have an array of ages we have high school young ladies that come in that like to make things. We have two colleges in our town and we get college students in that love to make things and they sit there. If it fits on your lap, you can bring it in. We have everything from knitters to people that do punch needle to polymer clay makers who have a little desk on their lap. It's fascinating. But it goes all the way up to 90. We have 90 year olds that come in and it's a beautiful mixture of ages and they help each other. and. On Thursdays, there's a group that comes in and they tend to be elders, 75 and up. And if anybody's offended by that, I apologize. <laughs> I'm getting there where it keeps going up, right? It used to be like 60 and up. And now it's like 65 and up and elders, 70. Now, well, you know, it's just going to keep going up as I age. But I love these women 
because I learn so much from them. There's one woman that comes in and she is, I'd put her at about 79 to 81. I've never asked. And she said the other day, and I sit behind the register and I'm doing inventory and things like that when I'm at home. And I just listen to the conversation. And the other day she said, my husband has acquired some new scents and there's some smells happening that I just don't even know how to deal with. She said, so I took Vicks Vapor Rub and I put it on a tissue and I keep it in the shoulder of my top and I try and keep him to the right so that if the smell gets to me, I just turn my nose and sniff the Vicks. <laughs> it's good to have this stuff in my toolbox for later in life, right? Well, one day I was working the shop and I was alone and it was nearing early evening when the door opened and the bell jingled and in walked this sweet woman. I'd put her at about 83, very slight. She had on a lace pink sweater. She had on a, the memory foam hair. You know memory foam hair, right? They get it fixed once a week and it just stays there and bounces right back. And she was just so proper. She had her purse hooked on. She had her little navy skirt that went just above the ankle. And she stood there and she said, oh, this is a beautiful yarn shop. So right away, she had my heart. And I said, thank you so much for that. And I said, what do you do? Do you knit? Do you crochet? And she let the purse slide down her arm and she lifted up her hands. And I saw they were gnarled with arthritis. She said, I used to knit. I would knit sweaters for my grandchildren, sweaters for my husband, blankets for every new baby, layette sets for new babies at the church. She said, but I can't knit anymore. But I had my daughter drop me off. That's her sitting out there. She doesn't do any of this kind of stuff. She said, but I love yarn shops. And I saw yours as I was visiting her. And I asked her if she could drop me off. I said, well, you know what? You take your time. You walk through the shop, you enjoy yourself, pick up the yarn, pet it, feel it. If you don't knit or crochet, you don't understand that when people, when, when people come into a yarn shop who do that, they literally will pick up the yarn. They pet it to see what the feel of it is. Then they put it to their neck and they move it around to see if it itches. And then they decide if they're going to purchase it or not. And if they do, they usually give it a name. And they put it in their stash that is taking up a whole closet, but it, you have to have the fiber. It is a real thing. Well, she, she took a, a walk through the store very slowly, looking at everything. I have yarn thread and things like that. Lots of cute notions. And I kept busy because I didn't want her to think I was like watching her. And uh, as I did my work, I glance up once in a while and she made another loop around the store and stopped at a table that we have in the back right-hand corner. And I watched her as she looked at everything on that table because it's a specific display. And then she walked over to the left and looked at some things there and then she went back to that table. And I thought, okay, I need to go and I need to, uh, I need to see if I need to talk to her about something. So I walked back and she was still standing there and I said, do you know what this is? And she said, I think I might, but I don't know. And I said, well, let me explain it to you. I said, these are called knitted knockers. And these are knitted prosthetics for women who have had mastectomies. I said, when you have a mastectomy, you have a choice. You can either rebuild, which is expensive, uncomfortable, and a little scary, or you can buy a prosthetic, which is expensive, really heavy, and makes you sweat. And she looked at it and she said, can I touch it? And I said, yeah. And I handed it to her. And it's basically just a knitted 
rectangle, uh, triangle that is filled with polyfill. And I handed it to her. And I said, you just wear it until it kind of conforms and then you go. It's just, it's a beautiful thing. It's not heavy. It's not expensive because we do it for free. I wholesale the yarn to the women that make them. They make them for free. They donate them back. And then it's yours to have. I said, do you need one? And she said, two. I said, oh. I said, when? She said, 15 years ago. She said, that's why I wear a sweater. Because I just think that everybody knows. So I wear a sweater no matter what the weather is because I feel like it kind of just makes me feel more secure because I really think everybody knows. I said, well, we are going to get you hooked up. I got baby pink, baby blue, cream, flesh color, whatever color you want. She picked the color called Darling Pink. Well, on that table, we not only have a few for you, for people to look at, but we have a beautiful pink box that's made of wood and it has drawers. And in each drawer on the outside, it's marked with A, B, C, D. And then inside are the knitted knockers. When you pick it, we then fill it. We give you a pink box, black curly ribbon, tissue paper on the inside. We make a big deal out of it. So I said to her, well, I said, we'll get two for you in darling pink. I just need to know. What size were you before the surgery? And she said, B. And so I reached for the drawer that said B. And as I pulled it out, that gnarled hand came over, tapped mine and said, honey, I think I'd like C's. (laughs) That's one of those moments in life where it is a sacred moment between two humans, when something so personal, so life-altering is shared that all you can do is stand there and receive it. And sometimes those conversations are filled with uncomfortable topics that are more common in life than we know, but we don't know because we don't discuss it. And that time with Miss Rose was precious to me. And uh, my time with the elders in my shop is precious to me. And I ask to see pictures and I gather their stories. And I remember one time a woman came in and she was talking about how she had to spend some time in a nursing home for rehab and luckily she's not there anymore, she said. I'm so happy to be back in my own home. She said, but one time I was getting out of bed at the nursing home in the rehab area and something happened with my ankle and I slipped and went to the floor. She said, it wasn't a bad fall. I just crumpled down, but there was a nurse that saw it as she was passing by and she came in and she got me back up and she started scolding me. You need to be careful. You have to be careful when you're getting out of your bed. Make sure you have both feet on the floor and that you're sitting properly on the edge of your bed. And she said, she started to raise her voice with me and I took her hand and held it firmly and I said to her, one day this will be you. And I remember sitting there as she told me the story in that little yarn shop. And I thought to myself, one day, all of these stories that they share of their aches and their pains, the fact that everyone around them is leaving and moving on, crossing over that sin, that thin silver line between here and there. And that is going to be me. And so I treat every elder that walks through my door with great reverence. And that does not make me a hero. It makes me someone who's been enlightened because I've spent time with them. And I encourage you to do the same thing. If you have people in your life 
that are getting to that elder age, ask them the questions and gather the stories, even the uncomfortable ones, not just the happy and the fun and the silly and the good, but the ones that are difficult because those are the ones you'll share later with your family that will, that will bring altering circumstances and make people rethink things. And so here's a little song that I wrote. There's a whippoorwill outside my window And it's calling me to fly There is smoke upon that mountain It's calling me to fly Granddaddy's tick-tocking the time away Grain of sand falls with the beat of each passing day Ashes and dust is where I come from Pocket full of memories and we all fall down There's a star that's slowly Day. Ashes and dust is where I come from. Pocket full of memories, and we all fall down. Now my burden's no longer heavy. I'm learning how to fly. Spread my wings. I'm learning how to fly Don't cry for me I'm watching you from above Don't cry for me My life was filled With love Granddaddy's tick-tocking the time away Grain of sand falls with the beat of each passing day. Ashes and dust is where I come from. Pocket full of memories, and we all, we all must fall down. It has been such a pleasure to have you with us this hour. There's a long time that we didn't get to get together, a long time when this kind of gathering would have been impossible, and here we are together. It's got me uh, thinking about the role that stories and music have played during that time when we were all, you know, in tight little knotted groups all over the country, all over the world, and again, sharing stories and music with one another. I think about dark times that have come before the dark time that we have passed. I think all the way back to 1899, I wasn't around, but in 1899, there was a Canadian songwriter. Ada Blankhorn was her name, and she had a nephew who was wheelchair-bound, 
And her nephew would always ask, whenever he was pushed around in town by his folks, he'd always ask to be pushed on the sunny side of the street. Well, Ada Blankhorn put that sentiment into a song in 1899, a song that got included in one hymnal or another, a song that was picked up by the Carter family and recorded. Johnny Cash made a recording of the tune. And it's a song, the kind of song that at first seems just lighthearted as anything, but it's a song that helped people get through the flu pandemic in the early part of the 20th century, a song that helped people get through the Great Depression, and a song that has helped us get through the dark, hard times that we have lived in our memory. And we thought we'd wrap up with this tune. There's a dark and a troubled side of life. There's a bright and a sunny side too Though we meet with the darkness and strife The sunny side we also may view Keep on the sunny side, always on the sunny side Keep on the sunny side of life It will help us every day, it will brighten all the way If we keep on the sunny side of life today, crushing hopes that we cherish so dear, the clouds and storms will in time pass away, and the sun again will shine bright and clear, keep on a sunny side, always on a sunny side, keep on a sunny side of life, it will help us every day, it will brighten all the way. If we keep on the sunny side of life Keep on the sunny side, always on the sunny side Keep on the sunny side of life Such a pleasure to have Kim Whitecamp with us, ladies and gentlemen. And thank you for joining us for the Appleseed, especially our wonderful studio audience. You can find us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed, an archive there filled with stories, some that are already favorites and some that will become favorites as you listen. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed.
Hi, it's Sam. We had such a great time with Kim live in the Appleseed studio. And we've got just a few more minutes in today's hour of the Appleseed. And so we thought we'd bring you one more little thing. This is also a live recording. Kim Whitecamp and her pals Paul and Ryan Little from Kim's collection, Pickle in the Middle Blues. It's a little piece, frankly, about how tough it is sometimes to be a kid. We're happy to bring it to you and to wrap up our hour today with this from Kim and her friends. I'm going to tell you what, it's hard being a kid, and I remember, and sometimes as grown-ups, we forget how hard it was being a kid, and we have to remember that. Now, Ryan, you are one of how many children? Two. And are you the older or the younger? Oh, you're the youngest. Was that hard? It was terrible. Everyone say, oh. Why was it terrible? His sister used to wrap him up in a blanket and drag him around the yard for hours. How did that make you feel, Ryan? It hurt? Physically, it hurt. Well, we're going to do some self-therapy in a minute. Paul, how many were in your family? How many kids? Uh, Five kids. Five? I was the oldest. You were the oldest? Mm -hmm. Did you bully those kids? No, never. And my sister's in the audience, and she can attest to that, I'm sure. Oh, did she pick on you? Uh, occasionally, yeah. I'm sorry, she Paul. She was tougher than I was. So it's hard being the oldest. It's pretty tough, yeah. Well, how, uh, did it make you feel blue, Paul? Yeah, sometimes it did. What does that sound like? If you could tell me what that sounds mm. like, what would it sound like to have the Big Brother Blues? Let me see. <laughs> okay, let's try it. What about the Little Brother Blues? Oh, do you ever get the blues? Now I'm going to tell you what, it was rough for me. He may have been the oldest and he may have been the youngest, but I was the pickle in the middle. My brothers would find stuff that belonged to me and stand on either side far apart and throw it back and forth and go, pickle in the middle, pickle in the middle, and I could never jump high enough to get it. Oh, it was rough having the pickle in the middle blues. And I'm going to tell you about it right now. See... Sometimes we'd be riding in the family car. We wouldn't have been going long, hadn't gotten very far. I'd have a brother on my left and a brother on my right. And they'd draw a line down the back seat and say, cross it, there'll be a fight. Oh, I got the pickle. Oh, I got the pickle in the middle balloon. Wasn't bad enough. I had a little sister, and all she did was cry. Well, she didn't even like it when I'd try and sing her a lullaby. Now, when she was noisy, oh, Mama'd rock her in her lap. But when I was noisy, Mama'd say, Girl, go take a nap. Oh, I got the pickle. Oh, I got the pickle. In the middle balloon. Play it, boys.
look at me and say, oh, she's just small. But in my head, I had ideas that were 10 feet tall. If they would just take the time to listen to what I had to say, well, they would have found out that I was good for more than sleep and play. Oh, I got the pickle. Oh, I got the pickle in the middle balloon. Pickle in the Middle Blues, performed by Kim Whitecamp and her pals Paul and Ryan Little, recorded live before an audience in a performance of the kind that has made Kim Whitecamp a household name among storytelling enthusiasts everywhere. Such a pleasure to have her with us live in the Appleseed studio. And, of course, you can find a lot more Appleseed at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. Almost 2,000 episodes there filled with stories for you and your family. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed.